The UN itself has condemned these offshore processing facilities and this pivot of Australian policy towards use of these offshoring type facilities as being, you know, an affront to common decency of, you know, common, yeah, common decency. There have been child abuse scandals. There's a mental health crisis in all of these places. People are being left in these centres to, to rot because there's nowhere for them to be sent onwards to in most cases. It's, it's, it's absolutely horrendous. And to think that the United Kingdom government would be looking covetously at those kinds of policy wrong turns and thinking, oh, let's, let's take that and drop it over here into Britain is shameful. It's absolutely shameful. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. I'm your host, Nathan. Today I'm joined by Sonia Skeet, who is Chief Executive of Freedom From Torture. Freedom From Torture are a charitable organisation that provides specialist psychological therapy to help asylum seekers and refugees who survived torture recover and rebuild their lives in the UK. They also provide training for professionals who are working with um, survivors of torture. So welcome, Sonia. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Nathan. Brilliant. So let's get straight into it because Pretty Patel has introduced a new Borders and Immigration Bill and the changes that it brings to asylum policy in the UK are significant. They are the most far-reaching changes um, that we know of since the Refugee Convention of 1951 because what they do... So this Nationality and Borders Bill seeks, in its preamble, Priti Patel says, it seeks to increase the fairness of the system to better protect and support those in need of asylum. It then goes on to say that this bill proposal proposes differential treatment of refugees depending on how they arrive here. Those who come through regular means with papers or permission to enter the UK will be eligible to claim asylum. Those who knowingly arrive without leave to enter could be jailed for up to four years and then deported. Some whose claims will be accepted will be given temporary leave to remain, which will be reviewed every 30 months. So I wonder, Sonia, as as you sit in your chair as, as Chief Executive of Freedom from Torture, what your immediate response to these proposals is? But they're cruelty personified. I mean, this is, we, we've rechristened this bill the anti-refugee bill because that's what it is. Hmm. Home Secretary speaks about trying to increase the fairness of the asylum system, but it's anything but. I mean, as you've just relayed for our listeners, hmm. she's seeking to introduce a two-tier system, differential treatment for hmm. refugees based not on the horrors, the torture, et cetera, that they are fleeing in their countries of origin or the risk that they would face on return, but on their mode of arrival to the UK, which is flouting one of the great 
accomplishments of the Refugee Convention, the 70th anniversary of which we're supposed to be celebrating this year. Yeah. One of the, the, the important innovations of that convention was that prior to, to um, it coming into being, there was this view that people seeking protection needed pre-authorisation from a state to arrive. And that is why during and immediately after the Holocaust, mm -hmm. we had so many thousands of Jews and others who were trapped, who were unable to get to places of refuge because they couldn't get that pre-authorisation to arrive. And the Refugee Convention said, mm -hmm. you must not penalise somebody for reaching your country to claim protection without having been given permission first. And this cardinal principle of international law, which is the basis for a compassionate and fair asylum system, not just in the UK but globally, is being overturned hmm. by this anti-refugee bill. So it is the absolute antithesis of fairness. It would wind the clock back you know, to the era when we didn't have something like the Refugee Convention as a sort of promise to humanity that people would be able to secure protection if they got somewhere safe and were able to demonstrate that they meet the internationally agreed definition of a refugee. This is what's at stake with this terrible bill that Priti Patel is laying before Parliament as we speak. Yeah, no, that's... Um... It's an extraordinary, it's got some seriously extraordinary implications for some of the people who you who you assist at your organisation. So do you think at its very core, do you think it breaches some of the tenets of, of the 1951 Refugee Convention and that this can be successfully challenged in the courts here or in the international courts? In short, yes. Uh, Freedom from Torture commissioned a legal opinion from Raza Hussein QC, who was one of the country's top immigration and asylum barristers. He was supported by a number of other specialists as well. And based on that legal opinion, we are very concerned that this bill would violate key tenants of the Refugee Convention and other international treaties that the UK is a party to. But don't just take it from us, take it from the UNHCR, you know, the UN's global refugee agency, which has similarly come out expressing publicly very grave concerns about the compatibility of this bill with the Refugee Convention. So um, the government will have a fight on its hands in trying to prove um, to our legislature here in this country and ultimately, if it comes to it, to the courts, that what they are proposing um, is consistent with our international treaty obligations. And don't forget, this is a government that has form mm. when it comes to riding roughshod over our legal obligations, our treaty obligations. I mean, this is not the first time that they have thrown down the gauntlet in this way. We saw this over the um, the, the Brexit uh, um the, the, the legislation, we saw it in relation to the Overseas Operations Bill, which would have decriminalised torture effectively for British troops accused of it um, 
in, in, in countries um, elsewhere more than five years ago. We put a stop to that and secured two climb downs from Boris Johnson on that. But it's a, this is just part of a pattern of attempts by this government to legislate in ways that are incompatible with treaty obligations that the UK has solemnly entered into. And in this context, this post-Brexit context, where the UK is trying to reposition itself on the world stage as global Britain, a country that you know, stands for the rule of law and democracy, takes our international commitments seriously. This is a really worrying, um, worrying problem. It's a worrying problem. And I think that it is going to attract a lot of international condemnation. The, the United Kingdom has, has a history of, um, of generally writing most international treaties. So, so from as far back as the the, the first um, clauses of, of human rights and Magna Carta. Um, do you think that other countries will be persuaded by the direction that Britain is taking when it comes to refugees? Because we've spoken to a lot of people, um, sociologists in particular, and people who've looked historically, particularly, particularly at um, the resettlement of, of Jewish people after the Holocaust, and what they say to us is that the 1951 convention, when it was envisaged initially, they were looking to only resettle Europeans. Do you think that Britain leading in this way in trying to move completely and to, to term people who arrive here as illegal if they've passed through what Pretty Patel is terming a safe country, do you think other countries will be persuaded by this? Because Denmark is looking at, at offshoring people who arrive to its territory uh, without a visa. Yeah, it's a good question, Nathan. Um, and what I would say is that the UK appears at the moment to be going further because it is actually proposing to criminalise people for having the temerity to turn up here fleeing torture or persecution to seek protection. So this act of kind of criminalisation is one thing. Mm. Proposals to offshore the processing of asylum claims um, are another matter. And, of course, the UK is not the first country um, to have mm. experimented with this or to have threatened to, to do so. My country, Australia, mm. um, has famously um, trashed its international reputation by setting up these processing centres in Nauru and um, Manus Island in a bid to stop people from being able to claim to settle in Australia if they've arrived uh, by, by boat. So there is a kind of negative, very regressive international trend. But the United Nations is absolutely clear that this rush to so-called externalise treaty obligations is an affront to common decency. That is the language that the UN... Uh, now Secretary-General used to describe Australia's abhorrent foray into these kinds of proposals. So the UK is seeking to parrot uh, the approach of, of my country. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of speculation that it is, it is a, a lot of this is grandstanding. So far, the UK does not seem to have concluded any agreements with states, whether safe third countries, as they call them in Europe, through which people may have passed, or completely unrelated countries like Rwanda. That was sort of touted in um, some of the press headlines a couple of weeks ago. Mm. A lot of this seems to be a lot of smoke at the moment. In other words, there are no agreements that anyone is aware of that the UK has reached in order to um, 
facilitate this and indeed there is not much focus on offshoring in this anti-refugee bill mm. that Pretty Patel is tabling at the moment. So we'll have to see. But in terms of what is actually realistically being proposed here and achievable, we would say that a lot of it is completely unachievable mm. and moreover that this is not the right way forward. You know, the UK takes less than 1% mm. of the world's refugees we are not stepping up in the way that we should be as one of the most wealthy, stable democracies on planet Earth. So I think, you know, from our point of view, we would rather focus on what is so wrong about these proposals, but it just so happens that we think they are unworkable as well. Right. So let's simplify this for our listeners who, who are interested uh, in immigration issues, who are confronted by headlines every morning of people arriving uh, through through Kent on small little boats. They are now told that those people who are here to seek sanctuary are illegal. Can you talk to us about whether safe and legal routes exist? That statement, safe and legal, can it stand the test of time? Are there safe and legal routes that exist? First of all, Nathan, I would just really want to emphasise that no person is illegal. We really condemn this use of language out there in the mainstream media to describe people as illegal. Mm. People who are reaching the UK in order to claim asylum are doing so pursuant to their human rights. You know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights makes it very clear that there is a right to seek asylum. And we've just been talking earlier in the podcast about the way in which the Refugee Convention yeah. makes clear that nobody should be penalised for the mode um, of, of travel um, to a safe country to claim asylum. Mm. And on your second question about uh, safe pathways, the, the Home Secretary is making much of this. Um, she is claiming uh, that the government wishes to increase uh, the ability for people to secure protection in this country via programs like the resettlement program. Mm. But I, I I really want to impress that at the moment this is just a lot of talk with no commitments. The UK's resettlement program has effectively been shut since around March last year. So the UK has, as well as trying to stop people being able to come here without international assistance in order to claim asylum, the UK has effectively closed its doors since the advent of the pandemic for people, you know, who were previously under a commitment that David Cameron had made, um, being resettled here um, via the resettlement program from refugee camps um, in the Middle East and elsewhere. We are expecting that the Home Secretary will make an announcement uh, uh, the One Strong Voice Network, which is a coalition of lived experience campaigners in the migration sector, is calling for a commitment of no less than 20,000 people to be brought each year. Remains to be seen whether the Home Secretary will meet that kind of demand at the moment. Um, you know, there, as I say, there is sort of not much going on. But, I mean, to, to kind of... Step away for a second, you know, from the resettlement program. I, I'm always reminded when I'm asked this question of the words of Sabir Zazai, who is the chief executive of the Scottish Refugee Council, who is himself a former asylum seeker and um, refugee from Afghanistan. And he he always responds in disbelief when people um, are taking at face value these kinds of claims by the Home Secretary. He says, 
you know, do you really seriously consider that an option for him was to turn up to the British Embassy in Kabul mm. and say, oh, I'm seeking um, protection, I'm being persecuted by the Taliban. Will you give me a visa so that I can travel to the UK and claim and claim protection? I mean, of course not. There's absolutely no such facility for people to front up to a representative of the UK government abroad and say, I'd like permission to travel to the UK in order to claim asylum. So that, you know, kind of scenario, which is the first kind of scenario that people might think of when they hear about safe and legal pathways is just a complete fiction. Nothing of the sort has ever existed. So the resettlement program is, is a sort of an alternative to that, let's say, and as I say, it's poultry. Mm -hmm. And Freedom from Torture's very clear position on this is that resettlement is really important, but it must not be used as an excuse for shutting down the, the ability of people like those who we help, people you know who have been tortured elsewhere, from being able to get here under their own steam in order to claim protection, as is their right, under the Refugee Convention and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Hmm. And most of these people who, who arrive by boat are, are going to be put up in accommodation, which is very different from somebody who, say, has arrived at an airport um, and managed to claim asylum, who's ordinarily put into initially into hotels and then given some accommodation. Uh, there is this phenomenon or whether it's a test case that Priti Patel has been trialing and and putting people up in these former army barracks like like Napier barracks. What do you make of that? Of the fact that she actually has done that and that there isn't much of a pushback, say, from the, the opposition, from the Labour Party opposition or the Liberal Democrats. The Scottish nationalists have sort of spoken up most about this but there isn't any pushback so first of all um i just wanted to really emphasize for our listeners that the people who are coming across via the channel mm. who are depicted in the media as being and, and by the government indeed as having unmeritorious asylum claims simply because they have passed through other countries on en route quietly when nobody's looking, the Home Office admits freely mm -hmm. that the vast majority of these people arriving are indeed refugees. They're coming from countries like Iran and Syria and Eritrea, countries where many of our clients who we provide rehabilitation services to mm -hmm. come from. Countries, in other words, where the kind of the problems of torture and persecution are really well understood. They're rampant. So just wanted to make that very, very clear that the people we are talking about are for the most part people who do have strong protection claims and quietly the Home Office admits that. They're just trying to say, well, actually, some other country can process them, thanks, and provide protection for them. Mm -hmm. Secondly, to come on to your question about the way in which they are being supported uh, whilst their asylum claims are pending or whilst the government is otherwise trying to break its own laws by seeking to remove them um, wrongly, and there was a lot of press coverage of those kinds of practices over this last weekend. Mm -hmm. It is true, as you say, that there has been this move uh, since the onset of the pandemic to house torture survivors and other asylum seekers away from our ordinary communities. Mm 
in institutional accommodation, in hotels and in disused army barracks. And Freedom from Torture, together with every other charity that works with asylum seekers and refugees, is vehemently opposed to this practice. I mean, the barracks, for example, I mean, they're utterly inhumane. I mean, our doctors have been very public in condemning the lack of safety for people and the inappropriateness of this type of accommodation. I mean, Napier Barracks back in 2014, local inspectors went in and said these barracks are not fit for human habitation. You know, I mean, they're, they're just, they're not fit. And, of course, in the context of a pandemic, we were all warning about the risk of a COVID outbreak and it happened. And many people became very, very, very ill because this accommodation was not suitable. It couldn't be made COVID safe and the inevitable happened. So there have been a lot of uh, court cases. There's been a lot of pressure. Indeed, actually, the opposition political parties have been um, quite strong on in, in their opposition, actually, to the use of this kind of accommodation. I think it hasn't been getting much airplay, but the SNP and the Labor Party have um, definitely been voicing their very serious concern about the use of this kind of accommodation to accommodate vulnerable people. I mean, the, the courts have shown time and time again that some of the people who are being placed in this accommodation are people who have survived torture against the government's own, 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 own advice and guidance. So the wrong people are there. But from, from our point of view, no asylum seeker should be accommodated in those kinds of ways. We believe very, very strongly that people who have come to this country seeking protection whilst their claims are being processed should be accommodated in our communities where they have access to the kinds of support networks um, like our organisations, for example, um, where they can be around people who speak their language, where they can, um, you know, feel safe. That's the most important thing, where they can feel safe and where, you know, after when they've been granted protection, their chances of integration are, are increased. So that's what we're calling for, accommodation for asylum seekers in in our communities, and the government should be working with local authorities to make that happen. Hmm. I wonder, talk to us, Sonia, about how do you, why do you think we've arrived at this position? Because last year, the UK received about, in the year or two April, the UK received about 26,000. Um, asylum applications, 8,000 of those, we're told, um, are arrivals through the channel crossings. Do you think that those channel crossings and their visibility in the media is why we've arrived at this position where Britain takes such a hostile approach? Nathan, I think that is such a good question. And We've been reflecting on this long and hard at Freedom From Torture and our, our view, which we began to share publicly, openly from the middle of last year onwards, was that this, this sense of crisis about the channel crossings was a politically manufactured crisis in order to distract the attention of this country away from mess-ups on the part of this government in relation to initially it's Brexit, um, negotiation handling and and then secondly it's handling of the of the COVID pandemic. Mm. This this looks to us like it comes straight from the Australian political playbook. 
In my country, you you may know this, other listeners may also be aware that the Liberal Party, which is the Australian Conservative Party, you know, fought and won a number of elections by scapegoating and demonising asylum seekers. There was this famous election where the government falsely claimed just before the vote that asylum seekers on a boat were throwing their babies overboard in a bid to um, secure rescue at sea um, and to, um, because they cared not about their babies but about trying to get into Australia at all costs. It was complete fallacy. But this this um, Tampa crisis, as it was referred to, mm-hmm. was made up by the politicians who were being advised by the very same political advisers who have been installed in Conservative Party headquarters here in the United Kingdom advising this government about how best to engineer an electoral victory at the next general election in this country off the backs of asylum seekers by scapegoating them, by in, in by keeping the electorate in a heightened state of concern about border control, mm-hmm. by dog-whistling to the far right, by making people fearful of invasions by foreigners, um, completely lying about who these people are, what they're fleeing, why they're seeking to come to this country. And now we've got a bill, Mm -hmm. the anti-refugee bill, as we call it, which is designed to keep these issues at the forefront of the media agenda. Mm. I mean, we're talking about five, eight, 8,000 people a year. Mm. In, in public policy terms, this is a very, very small number of people. It's, it's not the most public, you know, the most pressing public policy challenge facing this country. And yet to read the media, you would think that it, that it is. And that's mm. what we are up against. And so, you know, we've come together, Freedom From Torture, with 250 mm. other groups across the country working with asylum seekers and refugees or just wishing to show solidarity in order to speak out against this, in order to unite caring people in this country in opposition to this kind of politics and to the policies that we are now seeing winding their way onto the face of this this anti-refugee bill. And we are gathering more and more support every day we have, you know, the, the press coverage has been fantastic. The number of kind of media commentators who are now coming out in support, standing up, speaking out against this vile, cruel bill is, is increasing as every week goes by. And, you know, we believe that it's time to draw a line. I mean, we've just seen, I mean, I'm not a football fan myself, but it yeah. has been incredible, hasn't it, to be watching the way in which Gareth Southgate has united the country with an alternative kind of vision, yeah. you know, a vision of a compassionate, inclusive, um, you know, informed, principled, mm-hmm. you know, set of British values that are so absent when we look at Number 10 Downing Street at the moment and our cabinet. And I believe, you know, all of us at Freedom From Torture believe that this is a sign of a pendulum swinging away from this nasty, divisive, authoritarian politics that Boris Johnson, you know, aided by his Australian strategist, is telling him was his meal ticket through to the next election, and swinging away from that mm. towards, you know, a caring, compassionate politics um, that we are building power for 
every day and finding new allies for every day. We feel really hopeful that in the end we will prevail. No, that's a, it's amazing that you, you've got this coalition of a lot of people who are kind and compassionate who, who would rather that Britain was pursuing a, a different policy. Some of those people who work for some of the biggest charitable organisations that this, this country has will be concerned about a really peculiar clause in, in the Nationality and Borders Bill that talks about helping an asylum seeker enter the UK will no longer need to be for gain to attract criminal liability. What it says now is the core of this, of, of this new offence says that a person commits an offence if he knowingly facilitates the arrival or attempted arrival or the entry or attempted entry into the United Kingdom of an individual and he knows or has reasonable cause to believe that the individual is an asylum seeker. So pertaining to to people who are rescuing, um, people who arrive through the channel, do you think that such clauses are going to deter people from from rescuing survivors of torture and people who are just here to seek sanctuary and that it will create fear and that we may find that people start drowning in the channel. I mean, this is certainly the dilemma that this clause that you quote throws up. But it has been absolutely fascinating, hasn't it, to see the horror with which that has been greeted by all kinds of caring, middle-of-the-road people in this country who might not necessarily consider themselves to be refugee advocates or defenders, Mm -hmm. but for whom the principle of saving life at sea, no questions asked, Mm -hmm. is ancient and must be defended. So the way in which the country is rallying around the RNLI, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution right now, I think says a lot about the country that we really are. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the horror of that clause is such that it may not survive its passage through Parliament. I think that there will be opposition from within the Conservative ranks as well, to something that pernicious and cruel. So I think let's watch this space. But I don't believe um, that as a country this is who we are and that that kind of penalisation and, um, you know, and and, and an attempt to sort of stop life-saving institutions from doing their job will go down well with, with this country, the people of this country. I just don't think it will. Yeah, and the the Crown Prosecution Service last Thursday uh, released a statement saying that they have no plans to prosecute any migrants and instead would still focus on on prosecuting uh, smugglers. Um, It's been a really fascinating conversation with you, Sonia. Let's talk about their implications of the new two-tier system. On principle... Do you do you welcome the fact that Britain says that it will now resettle people and that when they arrive here, they'll be granted indefinite leave to remain? 
So to be absolutely clear, freedom from torture is in favour of resettlement programs. They're a really, really important part of the patchwork of policy measures that we need to have in place in order to step up as a, as a wealthy, safe, democratic country to provide protection for people who are fleeing tyranny torture, persecution elsewhere. So we're really in favour of resettlement and we want to see the government make a strong, very healthy uh, commitment um, that has been unforthcoming right now. But as I said before, there is a call out there for the government to resettle less than no less than 20,000 people per year. Let's see whether they um, are up for meeting that meeting that request. Um, and and, and so for those people who are coming into the country via a, a resettlement program, of course, it's fantastic that they're given indefinite leave to remain. They will have already had their asylum claims processed um, before arrival in the UK. So why wouldn't we just give them automatic indefinite leave to remain so that they can get on with rebuilding their lives, accessing the kinds of therapies that organisations like mine provide um, and, and getting on with the business of integrating, knowing that they are safe. Mm. I think that's really, really important. What we are not in favour of mm. is an attempt to set up a two-class system whereby people who reach the UK via other means without the need for international assistance in order to claim protection, you know, and who then are recognised as refugees, they should not be disbenefited. Mm. You know, put it like this. I mean, just just think for a moment about two torture survivors tortured in the same torture chamber in the same part of Syria on the same day. Mm. One of them makes their way to Jordan um, and after years and years and years is processed, um, granted, recognised as a refugee and promised safe passage to the UK where they will be able to rebuild their life in safety. Mm. The other torture survivor doesn't get to Jordan but finds a, a route other ways and winds up crossing the channel and seeks protection immediately upon arrival. And that person under the new system would probably not even have their asylum, their asylum claim processed. They would be at risk of being removed to the country that they'd passed through or somewhere like Rwanda with whom they have absolutely no connection. Hmm. And ultimately they face a risk of being of being returned back to torture or, or experiencing human rights violations elsewhere and certainly a lack of safety and a lack of an ability to rehabilitate following the torture that they've experienced and an ability to rebuild their life. It's just not fair. Hmm. They've experienced the same thing. Their yeah. need for protection is absolutely equivalent mm. and we should have a system that doesn't differentiate we should be focusing on what people are fleeing what they're at risk of on return and granting them protection accordingly not focusing instead on kind of travel routes and things like this it's just a distraction away from the real issue which is that people are being tortured every day on this earth and many of them are not able to get somewhere where they can find themselves the services that they need in order to recover and an ability to rebuild their lives in safety. It's just not right. Yeah, no, that's, that, that is really a key point. And what I wanted to focus on now is you'll have um, far much more information than, than most of our listeners will have about, about what the Australian government um, introduced in offshoring people to, to Nauru and to, to Manus Island. What we've been told, and this has been briefed to to some of the the country's biggest newspapers is that those people who arrive through means which are deemed not to be satisfactory to this government 
may face the prospect of this offshoring, which has been, you know, briefed to newspapers and articles written about that and um, agreements of some sort posited with Denmark and Rwanda keeps on coming up as having some memorandum of agreement. Talk to us, Sonia, about about Nauru and Manus Islands and what those places really are like. They're a disgrace. Not as places, but in terms of the... I'm sorry, I mean, Manus yeah. Island, beautiful, Nauru, beautiful. Yeah. But the offshore processing centres that Australia has set up in those two places are an absolute disgrace. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's been really upsetting for me as an Australian watching the international reputation of my country mm-hmm. being trashed. You know, we, we always thought of ourselves as the fair go country. Yeah. You know, we're a, you know, like like Britain in many ways, a country of migrants. Mm. And this darkening of our politics, this whipping up of hate against asylum seekers, as I was saying earlier, for electoral gains, has has been has been reprehensible. Mm. And the UN itself has condemned these offshore processing facilities and this pivot of Australian policy towards use of these offshoring type facilities as being, you know, an affront to common decency or, you know, common yet yeah, common decency. There have been child abuse scandals. There's a mental health crisis in all of these places. People are being left in these centres to, to rot because there are, there's nowhere for them to be sent onwards to in most cases. It's, it's, it's absolutely horrendous. And to think that the United Kingdom government would be looking covetously at those kinds of policy wrong turns and thinking, oh, let's let's take that and drop it over here into Britain is shameful. It's absolutely shameful. And we think that it is probably going to be unworkable. We know that the Home Office is really struggling to find countries um, or offshore, you know, off, off territories that it can used to send asylum seekers to for their processing. So, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, it's not a big part of this bill, I have to say. It's not a big part of this bill, which does suggest that a lot of the trailing of this offshoring is really in order to control the news cycle and to convince people that this government is serious about dealing with the channel crossings rather than it being a really sort of serious and well thought through Mm. uh, policy proposal. And I'll just say as well that the Australian system costs the equivalent of two million pounds per year per person to run. So it's really expensive. Really expensive, really cruel, really damaging for a country's international reputation. For all of these reasons, we are, the Together with Refugees Coalition that I mentioned earlier, is strongly opposed uh, to these proposals. And it is going to be a big kind of big battle in the years to come to stop you know, this kind of uh, approach becoming part of the, the UK protection system. Mm, apart from from this offshoring, what we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic is that the detention estate um, in the UK has grown. Um, what do you make of that? That people are spending 23 hours a day locked up in Britain's detention estate without a time limit for for being released. And I imagine through some of your programs at at Freedom From Torture for Therapy and 
practical help programs that you've been trying to assist most of these people who are who are detained? So yeah, first of all, I mean, looking at the big picture, one of the really depressing observations is that this furore, this manufactured furore over the channel crossings has reversed a lot of bipartisan progress on immigration detention. Mm-hmm. You know, the detained fast track system, this pernicious system that used to exist for um funneling people into detention, you know, on the basis that they were unlikely to have a good asylum claim and quickly refusing them and quickly ejecting them from the country was deemed unlawful by the courts. So at that point, the use of immigration detention uh, plummeted and what you had was a lot of detention of people who were at the end of the process or who um, had been uh, detained, um, you know, under sort of other enforcement um, mechanisms And so now what's happened is that the government with this new nasty sort of anti-asylum seeker politics is looking to restart something very similar to the detained fast track system. Mm -hmm. So we are, as you say, looking at an increase. So as well as them trying to increase institutional accommodation in barracks and hotels and all sorts of other unsuitable places, Mm -hmm. they are looking to ramp up detention of asylum seekers in order to, you know, ferry them back to a third country in Europe or Rwanda or elsewhere, and they're looking via this bill to increase their powers to do that. And it is really sad because even many Conservative MPs, including those who may have immigration removal centres in their electorates, began to really get behind, you know, an agenda to decrease the use of immigration detention for people who've not committed any crime let's not forget you know um so yeah i mean over the over the recent weeks you know we are hearing horror stories of people as you say being confined for up to 23 hours a day um i mean it's tantamount to solitary confinement isn't it and mm. it's it's just inhumane i mean we at freedom from torture We have helped so many torture survivors over the years who have been wrongly detained by the Home Office. Mm -hmm. And what they will often tell us is that the experience of being detained here in the UK, facing existential dread, not knowing whether they're about to be bundled on a plane back to the torturing state that they fled from, Mm -hmm. is so traumatising that for them it is often as serious in terms of its mental health impacts on them as the original torture that they experienced. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is that our therapists spend a lot of time supporting people to overcome that re-traumatising experience of detention here in this country. Mm -hmm. So the mental health impacts can be really, it can take years, years and years of therapy to undo the damage caused by immigration detention for people who've had such horrific experiences in detention elsewhere and who, whilst being detained here, worry that they're about to be put on a plane back. Yeah, and as you say, um, the, in the press uh, this this past weekend, we've, we've seen reports of um, the Home Secretary's looking to open Hassockfield Detention Centre in, in County Durham, where... This is this is a notorious form of prison um, where hundreds of young men were abused in the 1970s and 80s. So it's 
some of the things that are going on are, are unconscionable. And I, and I imagine that most of the people who you assist are, suffer years and years of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder stemming from some of those experiences in, in detention centers. And I wonder what kind of pushback can there be to make sure that not more detention centers are open? Because this may cause irredeemable harm. Absolutely, Nathan. I mean, this is all part of this need that we've identified to mobilise caring people across this country to resist these manoeuvres, this attempt to rebuild our asylum and immigration system, not along the lines of compassion, which is, let's not forget what Priti Patel promised in the aftermath of the Windrush scandal, but in order to institutionalise cruelty. No, we've reached a point where it's not enough for people to sit back and just passively disagree with this as a policy shift in this country. Mm. We have an opportunity now with this bill in order to come out and say not in our name, you know, this is not who we are. And... You know, it is just so thrilling to see that the Together with Refugees Coalition is finding so much support from household name charities like the British Red Cross and the Refugee Council and Freedom from Torture, all the way down to all kinds of local activist groups who have sprung up and are feeling so incensed at what they've seen happening to our public debate about asylum from the Channel Crossings last year onwards, you know, that they are starting to organise at local levels and we are building power. We're coming together locally, regionally and nationally to say to the public and to our politicians that this is not who we are and to call for a compassionate, fair and effective asylum system in which the dignity and humanity of those passing through it is at all times recognised. You know, this is, this is a winnable battle in the long term. And indeed, some polling that I saw recently, the Refugee Council commissioned from ICM confirmed that an overwhelming majority of people in this country want the UK to remain a place of safety for people seeking, you know, refuge from persecution and war, you know, and, and an overwhelming majority who wanted to see the UK have a humane and effective asylum system. So we feel really, really confident that the majority of this country are with us and they just need to know how to get involved. So anyone, anyone listening who wants to, who is not yet aware of the Together with Refugees campaign and wants to get involved, go onto the website, just put into the Google search Together with Refugees and find out how you can get involved via your social media feeds or by connecting in with local groups in your area who are, getting ready to be part of this fight because it's going to be a big one and it's one that we know is going to be going on for four years um, but we're in it for the long haul and we yeah, want you yeah, to join us. That sounds very hopeful um, uh, and finally Sonia just before we conclude how can people who are who have asylum claims who listen to this to this podcast get in touch with freedom from torture because many people don't come forward because they, 
they've had such a hostile experience in this country that even institutions and charitable organizations who could assist them, they they sort of stand back and are not too keen on, on coming forward. What would you say to those type of people who are, who are listening? I would say to any person listening who has survived torture and is frightened to come forward and seek help from organisations like Freedom From Torture that you must do so. Mm-hmm. We have incredible life-saving services that are available for people like you. Mm-hmm. And we would also really encourage you to go and get a good legal representative yeah. and to lodge an asylum claim. And your lawyer will be able to refer into our medico legal report service if you need documentation of your physical and psychological torture injuries to support your asylum claim. Mm-hmm. But it is really important um, to come forward in order to maximise your prospects of being granted protection and an ability to rebuild your life in this country safely, knowing that you will not be returned to further torture. And for others who are listening who may not have experienced torture, Mm. there are so many wonderful charities in this country, Refugee Action, Refugee Council, local organisations who provide all manner of services to help asylum seekers register their asylum claim, make sure that they get access to the accommodation that they need, um, accommodation that is suitable, for example, if you have children um, or the like. And so, you know, come out from the cold and seek help. Get the services you need, get into the system and ensure that you are able to secure the protection that you need. Mm. No, thank you so much for that, Sonia. It's been a really great conversation with you. And I guess it's probably important to say that history is littered with cruelty dressed up as law from Jim Crow in the United States to apartheid laws in in South Africa. And that it's important for people who are listening to join Sonia and her colleagues in fighting this borders and an immigration bill. So thank you so much for talking to us, Sonia, and I wish you all the best of luck in your role at, at Freedom of Torture. Thank you, Nathan, for having me on the show. So thank you for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk, where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at Coventry. So until the next episode of Still We Rise, thanks for joining us and goodbye.